0: Welcome everyone to another exciting episode of Supernatural Girls Radio. I'm your host, Patricia Baker, and I am here without Michelle this week. Michelle Claire, my co-host, is traveling. She'll be joining us in another couple of weeks. And she said, say hello. She's sorry she's missing this show because our guest, Gregory Little, is so, so fascinating. And he has a new book out. We're going to be talking all about it, Origins of the Gods. My goodness, I love this book. You have to get it. It is amazing. It brings so many pieces together, and I just can't wait to bring them on. So I'll make these announcements quick. But anyways, i got to announce a few things. A number of you asked what happened with Daniel Duke last week because he didn't show up. And Michelle and I were so disappointed because Daniel's been on the show before. He is the great, great grandson of Jesse James, and we were excited to talk to him about his new research into Jesse, Billy the Kid, and Secret Societies. I don't know exactly what happened uh, because we had, as usual, confirmed everything with him. He said he would be arriving to the radio board to participate, but apparently... He was not up to it for whatever reason. I invited him to give us a call so we could possibly do a pre-recorded show and air it at a later time. I have not heard back from him. So I hope he's all right. And I'm, I'm really sad that he wasn't on the show because we had a lot to talk about. I'm also a relative of Jesse James. And the last time he was here with us, we had a great time. So Jesse joined us. And it was great to talk to him, too. So hopefully at some point when things are better uh, for Daniel, he will call us back, and we'll see what we can do to get him back on. And next week, we've got Romy Bueller, the animal communicator and holistic health coach. She is going to be here. She's going to be doing readings for you for free. Find out what your pets are thinking and how they're feeling. And Romy has a lot to offer with holistic health care. If you have questions about food and medicines and alternative medicines, this is your chance to get everything answered. She also has a Facebook page. You can go and sign up on that, and she'll be doing Facebook Lives there. So this is something not to miss. Romy is one of the best animal communicators that we have found, and she's from Australia. So she will be joining us next week. Make sure you mark your calendar, and you can line up on the radio board to have your questions answered by Romy, and it'll be a lot of fun. Be sure to follow us on Facebook. We've got some great stories, as usual, lots and lots of UFO sightings all around the world. Take a look there if you want to keep up with everything that we're finding out. we certainly love to pass it on to you. So, as mentioned We have, or I have, a great guest for everybody tonight, and his name is Gregory L. Little. He is the author of more than 30 books. That's quite an accomplishment, including Dennis Sullivan Origins, co-authored with Andrew Collins. Gregory's research has been featured on the National Geographic Channel, MSNBC, Discovery, And the History Channel, he lives in Memphis, Tennessee, and his new book with Andrew Collins is Origins of the Gods, Teesum Cave, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. These guys put it all together, everybody. This is the roadmap we've been waiting for. So Gregory, welcome to the show. Well,
1: thank you. I appreciate it very much, Patricia. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, Hopefully I can live up to all that hype. We'll see. Uh, (laughs) Yes,
0: the
1: the book is co-authored with Andrew Collins. Andrew and I have worked on several projects together. Andrew, of course, is on the Ancient Aliens show pretty regularly uh, and also on the William Shatner show called The Unexplained. He's on that pretty often. But uh, Yes, Andrew and I have both been in the UFO field for a long, long time. Uh, Neither one of us have been Uh, Really, people really identified us. Me as an Indian Mound person, also an Atlantis guy and a guy who uh, did some work with um, archaeology and so on. That's what I was best known for. And Andrew, of course, is in the ancient aliens thing and Gobekli Tepe and so on. But we've both been into UFOs from the very beginning. uh, And we decided it's time for us to go ahead and put this thing together. We had the same ideas starting in the 19, late 1970s and 80s, which we discovered when we met, that we both fought the exact same thing. So, yeah, this book is a culmination of all that. I'm not sure it'll be our last, but uh, anyway, we'll see where this goes. But thank you so much well, for the I, kind words. I appreciate it.
0: Well, it's it's my pleasure, and it's it's just, I hope this isn't your last book because as I mentioned before we got on the air tonight, I I have gone through the book, but I am going to go through the book again so that I can really relish each and every page. You and Andrew have given us so much really, really good information so that instead of seeing this paranormal world, as it's very divided and it's it's Mothman over here and it's life after death over there and then we have Gobekli Tepe and ancient civilization somewhere else. You bring it all together in a way that makes sense. And that's what we need, that we need to understand how it all comes together. So you're talking in the book about very exciting things like plasma, photons, I mean, these are these are terms we need to understand and, and hear from you more about how this brings all of these events together. You also talk about Mothman, skinwalkers. How does this all fit together? So I'm going to let you start wherever you want and bring us up to speed on this.
1: Okay. Well, that's all right. I'll see where I can go with this. All right. So I usually start – or at least I usually get to the point where I ask people to imagine a jigsaw puzzle. You know, one of those puzzles that has thousands of pieces. Well, in this case, this is a jigsaw puzzle that if you went outside, you'd see it spread from horizon to horizon. And And when you walk to the horizon, you'd see this puzzle goes on and on. And if you actually walked over this gigantic jigsaw puzzle, you'll see groups of people that are kind of focused in on one little area and every now and then somebody goes, you know, oh wow, I've solved the puzzle, Eureka! I've got it! And they get a piece that fits and they think they've solved it but the puzzle is so vast they really don't see anything else and that's part of the problem with specialization. For example, in the UFO field there are people that are only interested in what is usually called nuts and bolts. That is, they believe that UFOs are physical craft from other worlds. They're made out of physical matter. You know, you could bang on the sides of them or whatever. And they have entities in them, living beings, sort of like us. And anything that doesn't fit that, they're not interested in it. For example, a Bigfoot. They go, ah, that doesn't have anything to do with UFOs. Or maybe a person that's going into a haunted house over and over and they're finding, you know, they're they're getting phenomena. And, well, the nuts and bolts person would say, well, that really doesn't fit. And that's the problem with this kind of vision. You're looking at just one little area and it is tricking you. It is really tricking you. It's like a trickster. And it's leading you to believe that you understand this, but you're not really seeing what's going on. The same thing would be true for the people that are just ghost hunting or the people that are just interested in any one phenomenon. That's the problem. It is a gigantic field that the paranormal is a gigantic field that includes lots of things everything from ancient alien reports which i think need to be explained ancient reports of angels you know we have all this biblical information of beings that are talking to humans delivering messages, which is what an angel is. It's a messenger. But they also perform other actions. They take people for a ride in a whirlwind now and then, but they've never been defined as extraterrestrial beings. They've always been defined as angels. We have the same kind of lore. Yeah, we have the same kind of lore in the Islamic world. We have the same thing in the Hindu world. Uh, These kind of of reports go back thousands and thousands of years. So we have ancient reports of angels. We have modern UFOs, modern UFO abductions. There are the contactees in the 1950s and 60s, which a lot of people say, oh, well, they all made it up. But they didn't. Some of the contactees, uh, these are people who reported – well, they they told a story like they were outside in the desert or they were by a lake and suddenly a light comes down from the sky and a flying saucer lands on the ground in front of them and somebody – a door opens, somebody walks out and it could be a Nordic-looking woman with long blonde hair or a Nordic – looking man with long blonde hair who's real tall, or it could be an alien gray, what what looks like one of those little gray beings, or it could be any other kind of being. And the being walks out and says, hey, we are from Mars. We're from Venus. We're from the moons of Saturn, wherever. And they say, Mm -hmm. yeah, we live there. We've been watching your world, and uh, you guys are doing stupid stuff with nuclear energy, and you're probably going to destroy yourselves, and we're here to save you. That's what the contactees were all about. So they Mm -hmm. all heard the same story uh, the contactees did, but of course uh, they were lied to, and we'll get to that in in a little bit about why they were lied to. But I do believe some of the contactees were telling exactly what they perceived to happen to them. But then there's apparitional phenomena, apparitions of the Virgin Mary, some of which are very, very profound and incredible with lots of evidence and information from them. There are also weird people in history like Joan of Arc. How do you explain someone like Joan of Arc who who in the 1420s got messages from what Clearly, appear to be angels telling her to do something which was impossible for a a teenage girl in France to do, and she did it. She followed their instructions pretty carefully, and everything they told her came to pass. Of course, the ending we know why it ended the way it did because she went further than what they told her to do. Then you have people uh-huh. like Edgar Casey, Edgar Casey, this the America's most famous psychic. How in the world did this person how in the world was this person able to do these health readings on thousands and thousands of people and the health readings were very very accurate and we know that because medical researchers have studied those run them down to find out what happened. And in general, the medical literature tells us Edgar Casey's health readings were correct at least 84% of the time. It doesn't mean they were wrong the rest of the 16%. They weren't able to really collect enough information to see if he was right or wrong. But basically, mm-hmm. how do you explain all those things? Everything from ancient aliens... To modern people who see ghosts or apparitions, people who see UFOs, how do you explain all that? So what Andrew and I wanted to do, we see it in a different way, and we see the jigsaw puzzle that I've been describing here as really one complete mosaic where everything does in truth connect, but it connects beneath the surface. The connections aren't as obvious as they might appear to be. They they are beneath the surface. And we wanted to really come up with kind of a theory of everything, something that would explain it all. So that's what we tried to do in this book, explain it all. And the truth is it all goes back to shamanism. It all goes back thousands of years when shamans started interacting with the other world shaman began interacting with, call it a spiritual world or whatever you want. Uh, I'd love to get into how the Native Americans talked about it coming into being and
0: how it works,
1: and that kind of leads us into all of it. So is that
0: that where you want me to go? Yeah, and before you start that, I just wanted to mention one thing. You know, you talk about how people get really narrowed into one subject, and this is what I've seen a lot too. It's And they dismiss other things, as you mentioned. So if it doesn't fit into their narrow perception of whatever it is they're involved with, then it gets dismissed. That is no different than the archaeologists who find things that don't match the timeline that they think we have. And we both know that they have found many, many objects, bones, you know, all kinds of things that don't match. What we've been told is a timeline, and they've dismissed it out of hand, which is exactly the same kind of thing. So we end up yes, it is. with just part of the story, which is such a shame. We're missing out on on so many wonderful experiences, pieces, etc. But if they don't match the narrative, then we don't get to hear about it until people like you and Andrew come along. So I just wanted to mention That's, that.
1: that- that's a really good point. Let me make let me give a simple example of that. I have um friends and I had some relatives who were archaeological excavation employees. That is they were they were archaeologists and had degrees and they actually conducted the excavations and these are young people that almost always do the excavations. If you've ever been on an excavation, Uh, It is not for older people. (laughs) It is a young person's work because it is strenuous and very meticulous and dirty. Conditions are usually bad. But here's what I was told by several of them. And it is, I ask them, uh, have you ever found anything that was out of place? It just didn't belong there. It's like it's an intrusion of some kind. And every mm-hmm. one of them told me the same thing. Yeah, we do. We find things regularly like they'll be dig I'm, they don't dig into mounds much anymore, but one of the people told me, "Yeah, we did an excavation into a mound and we found some coins that clearly didn't belong there. They weren't Native American. They were really old, but they didn't belong there." And rather than confuse the report, we just decided we just stuck those coins in our pocket and we never mentioned them in the report. So there's uh-huh. a lot of things like that. I had another one tell me, yeah, we found artifacts that didn't belong there. And they weren't talking about coins. And they said, we knew that it would just it would create too much trouble for us because if we reported it, they might pull our grant money. Because they're not. Oh, they are boy. thinking that maybe we faked it or something. Maybe we faked putting this item in there. They said we didn't fake it, but we knew that's what they would immediately think. This is a hoax, so we just didn't report it. We pocketed it and moved on, and never reported it. So that does go on. I know that goes on, uh, and even this. If you read the old Smithsonian reports that came out in the 1800s on the mound explorations, the early reports pretty much pretty much summarized and showed it with either photos or drawings of almost everything they found. Well, a few years later, when the Smithsonian was taken over by the uh, the crew that decided to say there were no giants in the mounds and that there was nothing yes. unusual, that everything was Native American, uh, that was toward around the year 1900 or so, uh, they then began saying, oh, this early stuff was hoaxed. In their reports, they say, we don't believe this was real from this report, but they couldn't get rid of the written books. So they put it in later books. So they were trying to back up and say, oh, we reported this stuff a few years ago, but we don't believe it's real now. Just because it didn't. It's not because they had evidence that it, didn't, that it wasn't real. It's because it didn't fit their narrative and their belief system. That's what it is. Yeah. People develop then- belief systems.
0: Yeah, it's a shame that it's so rampant in, in archaeology. But even with Akambaro and the figurines from Akambaro, and the, and the people were accused of, again, faking it. There's no way that dinosaurs and human beings could have existed at the same time. But yet you look at those figurines, you just know they are authentic. I mean, those yeah. things were real and are real. Yeah. But uh, somebody well, I know lots had of
1: examples. Yeah.
0: Yeah, had lots of these figurines and tried to donate them to a prominent museum, and they wouldn't take them because they said it didn't fit their timeline. So,
1: sure. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I so know. I understand exactly what you're in saying. We're
0: ignorance. <laughs> yeah. Well,
1: let's do the let's do the Native American belief system in this because that that's really other than the jigsaw that's my starting point. That really leads let's to it go. all. So. Uh, The Native Native Americans, we're talking about the ancient Native Americans. We're talking about the mound builders, uh, the Zuni, the Hopi, a bit of it from the Navajo. The Navajo are kind of latecomers to the Americas. Uh, They weren't the very earliest here, but some of their beliefs still relate to this. But in general, what I'm about to to say here comes from the main mound builder belief and the Cheyenne tribe. Uh, and Zuni and so on. So they they had, had a creation story. And there are two different types of stories that people get from Native Americans. You will hear uh, a lot of tales about like a coyote or a wolf. Uh, Sometimes you'll hear stories about spiders. You'll hear about turtles and all that. Those are called children's stories. Those are uh, stories for the masses. They're for entertainment. They are also to teach morals, to teach basic skills to children, Everything from, like, fire to being careful or learning about how animals build things and why or how to stalk them, all those are in those stories. But they've weaved in lots of other things to those stories, but those are not the real truth. They're simply children's stories, and that's thats not... I'm saying that, yes, but I'm getting that from the most prominent ethnographers in the United States today. There is a mm-hmm. whole other bit of information that Native Americans have, and those are called sacred knowledge, stories of sacred knowledge. They are hidden from the masses. Most Native Americans uh, were never aware of them, but ethnographers started revealing this back in the 1700s and 1800s. Uh, and they continued to get this information from Native American shame until about 1950, 60, or 70 or so, and now it's pretty much gone. So in terms of the sacred stories, they have a story of creation. Their story of creation begins with a singularity. That is not a term that I'm using from physics, although they talk about a big bang. Physics talks about a big bang and a singularity. And the Mm -hmm. singularity with Native Americans, they actually called it a singularity in their language. What it was, was a pure spiritual energy, a point of pure spiritual energy. That is what their singularity was. And for its own purposes, that we cannot possibly understand, this point of spiritual energy developed two forces within it. I don't want to say they're opposing or competing, but they appear to be opposing forces. And as soon as you have a singularity that develops two forces, well, it's not a singularity anymore. So that is what caused the Big Bang. Now, they didn't call it a big bang. The Zuni called it, they called this uh, single point of spiritual energy the container of all. And they said that for some reason it thought outward. Now, that's just the Zuni tribe's belief system. And the Zuni are the oldest uh, ancestors of the ancestral Puebloan people, better known as the Anasazi. Uh, they still exist today. The Anasazi are the, the ancestral Puebloan people in the Southwest, and the Zuni are probably part of them too. So, all right, so this singularity, when it developed these these two opposing sort of forces within it, it expanded instantly. And in the Native American belief system, it created a three-part universe. One of those forces is called the upper world the other force is called the lower world and the act of creation split those two apart And they each represent a primary force. I'll give you the name of the force in the middle. There is a middle world. The middle world is the physical universe or the earth. And since we live on the earth, I'll just talk about the earth. The Native Americans did the same thing with children. Uh, They talked about earth and they said, oh, it's suspended in four corners, the four four cardinal directions. uh, And that... um, It it is the physical world and that these two forces interplay on it. So I've already given you that little piece. The the physical world in this belief is a double-sided mirror with a three-dimensional interaction space on it. So let me explain what that means and why it's that. So the two forces, the upper world force is known as the force of creation or the force of order, O-R-D-E-R, order in the universe. So you have the sun's movements that are very predictable day to day and year to year. Uh, You have the movements of the moon, you have the movements of the stars, all of those are very predictable. And then animals that lived in the sky, which were mainly like eagles and hawks and ravens and such, uh, those were associated with this upper world and the upper world of creation. So creation is a spiritual force. The lower world or the underworld is the spirit of disorder, disorder Uh or chaos. It's also known in physics as entropy. Entropy is a truth in physics that simply says whenever something is created, the process of entropy instantly begins. And entropy is the breakdown of everything everything eventually breaks down to its most primordial element, whatever that may be. So entropy is, is the exact opposite of creation. Creation puts things together and makes them, creates order out of things. Entropy tears them apart. It's the exact opposite. So those are the two spiritual forces. So you have entropy at the bottom, creation at the top, and then... I said the Earth, the physical universe, is a double-sided mirror. What is it reflecting? Well, one of the mirrors reflects entropy from the lower world. The other one reflects creation from the upper world. So everything that goes on on the physical world, we're in a three, a, really a four-dimensional space, time being the fourth dimension. So we have width and depth and height and that's the three dimensions, and then the fourth dimension is time. The physical world exists, so those two spiritual forces, creation and entropy, can interplay on the surface. It allows them to maintain a harmony. It allows them to exist and maintain harmony among themselves. Into this mix of all this, human beings were sent, and human beings were all spiritual, keep that in mind, Every single thing is spiritual in nature. We're all part of the same spiritual singularity that began it all. Just like Carl Sagan once said, we're all made of stars. He's correct. Everything Mm -hmm. in the universe was once connected. And so everything in the universe in the Native American sphere was once connected too. But it's all spiritual in its nature. So we were sent here as spiritual beings to be on the, on the face of the earth where these two forces are constantly interplaying. Again, creation and entropy are constantly interplaying. And humans were here to appreciate it, to maintain harmony between these two forces, and to connect with it regularly. That's why we're here, according to this belief system. So shaman were tasked with connecting with this spiritual force on a routine basis, they did it throughout the year in all the various rituals and ceremonies they had you know they had ceremonies of uh of the busk, which was when they harvested corn, they had a big ceremony when they planted the corn, they had a ceremony. They have a ceremony at the winter winter solstice that's usually a death ceremony. They have a ceremony at the summer solstice. Uh, That particular one is the Testasis or Massum Ceremony, which we will probably talk about here in just a moment. Uh, But they had it throughout the year. But the purpose of all those is to connect with those two spiritual forces.
0: That's quite a task. So, uh, my goodness, I mean, there's so much that we're not doing. I mean, maintaining harmony, I'm having a hard time seeing that.
1: Well, we're not maintaining in today's anymore. world. That's the whole point. The Hopi had right. said, "The Hopi said, the Hopi, the whole core Anasazi, core Anasazi was their word for a world out of balance. When the Europeans came in, the Hopi said that the uh, that balance was no longer being maintained, and the world was going to spiral out of balance. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to be destroyed. It means it's going to be out of balance, and when things get out of balance. Uh, the spiritual world begins to intrude. That's exactly what it is. Yes, bad things happen. A lot of people get sick and people die and all that, Uh, but the spiritual world begins to intrude in unbalanced ways because, remember, Native Americans did it. They interacted with this because it was a necessity. They were told they had to interact with this. Us, on the other hand, We live in a way that isolates us from nature as much as we possibly can. We go out of our way to isolate ourselves from nature, and they lived in nature every day. That's why I say the ancient mindset of these people, the people that built Gobekli Tepe, the people that built the mounds in America or the earthworks in America or the pyramids, their mindset is beyond anything that we can really understand, People think that oh, some pharaoh ordered them to do it, and then they had whips and so on and used to force labor <laughs> to do way. it. Uh, right. But that, that's not that's not what it is. We can't really understand exactly why people would do this, but it has to do with maintaining harmony in the universe. That's what it has to do with. People were obligated to do it, and it, it has to do with a fundamental spiritual belief system that they had.
0: So we've lost our
1: way. We have Well, we've we have... lost our connection. We have lost our connection uh in terms of things that are in the book about this, we talk about a the electromagnetic energy spectrum. So electromagnetic energy is everywhere. It's absolutely everywhere. It is the best way that is usually to describe it is that it is a force that emanates from physical objects and all objects and is also reflected off of objects that's what it is so light is electromagnetic energy so is infrared light so is ultraviolet light so are x-rays so are cosmic rays so are radio waves cell phone waves all those are electromagnetic energy waves, and those waves, uh, we can't see them. If we, could see, if we could actually see the waves coming off of cell phones and cell phone towers, we wouldn't be able to see anything because there is so much energy being put off of cell phones and cell phone towers, and they're not, they're bubbles. It's not a straight line that's going from your cell phone to a tower. It is a bubble. You're putting out a gigantic bubble around you. That's how they work, and the cell phone towers are doing the same thing. They're putting a huge bubble around them, interacting with whatever gets into that bubble. So we're moving through these electromagnetic bubbles all the time, and we, we can't see them, which is a good thing. We only see about 5%, it's a little under 5% of the electromagnetic energy spectrum, and that is called visible light. And remember, I said it's energy that is reflected off of objects. So you're seeing the reflections of visible light off of objects when you look at things. So that is one piece. The next piece is that the Earth itself generates an electromagnetic field and it always has. It is called the Schumann Resonance. Schumann Resonance. There are actually three of them and they are all multiples of the same resonance. Every one of them is the multiple. They're all multiples of 7.83 hertz. It, that doesn't really matter, but here's the thing. We evolved, humans evolved, animals evolved, life evolved on the earth in this human resonance at 7.83 hertz. There was no human-made or man-made uh, electromagnetic energy anywhere. It was all natural. Now, with human beings, if you hook up an electroencephalograph to your head, an electroencephalograph reads electrical activity in different areas of your brain. If you hook it up and you get very relaxed and you are right at the cusp of doing real meditation, you're right at 7.83 hertz. That sits right between wakingness and this meditative state. And it's believed by many, not just us, uh, we say it in the book, but of course we're getting it from other people, it's believed that we we evolved in that and that we have a special, sort in that 7.83 hertz range that we evolved in it and we have some sort of a relationship with that particular frequency. And that relationship allows us to interact with it somehow. So, mm-hmm. Today, as the in the room that I'm in right now, I have uh three computers and printers and oh my god, lots of stuff in here. Uh when I wrote the book, I wrote a sentence saying, I'm going to see how many Wi Fi signals I'm receiving and in the book I said, and this is true, I had twenty one Wi Fi signals I was receiving. And what oh that goodness. means is yes, there were twenty one electromagnetic bubbles Every one of them on its own frequency, because every one of them has to have a different frequency. They can't have the same one. But there were 21 of those bubbles that I was in. And I was, getting, I was picking up my own Wi-Fi router, but I was also picking up a bunch of neighbors. I was picking up a hotel that was about 300 oh, yards goodness. away. I, and I, was, on the, I lived on an island in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. And on one side of the island, not too far, in fact, I could see it from our upstairs window, there was Homeland Security, the Coast Guard, the Corps of Engineers, and the FBI. They were all right along this river there in a a compound there. And I was getting all of their Wi-Fi signals because they were very strong signals in addition to these others. I had 21. And so what what I call that, it's like an electromagnetic cesspool. We have so many frequencies constantly bombarding us. And all the wiring in your home, the wiring, there is electromagnetic energy coming from the wires. And it is, it is oscillating 60 times a second. It's reversing itself 60 times a second through electricity. So it's kind of a mess, all right? So there's, yeah. back in the 90s, people were identifying uh with the pro with when when we really started having a lot of um electromagnetic pollution which uh, medical journals call it electrosmog which is a very mm. strange term uh but yeah. there is a a yeah in the 90s this disorder began uh being found and it's called electromagnetic sensitivity And it was related to people that claimed they could feel electromagnetic fields. They had increased anxiety. There was a constant uptick in in ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Uh, And I'm a retired psychologist, so that's partly why I talk about this stuff. Uh, But anyway... All of these Yeah, it's important that,
0: because I mean you're you're touching on yeah. things that that people are living. I mean they are. Yes. The levels of anxiety in people today are out of sight. So well, yeah, it's absolutely. important that you're talking about this.
1: Well, there's no doubt we've got we've got a it's like a massive storm here all at once. We have everything from a pandemic to a war. And then we have all this electromagnetic stuff that has been in the background since probably the 90s. You know, the Internet really didn't exist in the the 80s, uh, and it started pretty much up in the 90s. I'm not sure when routers very first started, uh, but they had stuff available for people. I remember using phones uh, to, you know, you'd stick a phone into a um, some sort of a cradle to use the internet, which basically all you could do is connect with universities then. But it's gotten much worse. And we know that certain mental health disorders have increased. The The cell cellular providers have done a lot of research. It is true they've done quite a bit. and And they really can't find any physiological effects, negative physiological effects, as long as you don't keep your cell phone on your body and you don't talk on it very long with it up against your ear, it's safe Mm -hmm. as long as it's not on your body and as long as it's not up against your ear for more than, say, an hour a day or maybe an hour. I think an hour and a half is considered heavy usage by it. And that is actually in the back of those little tiny booklets that you get with your cell phone. (laughs) Uh, it's It's like... Yeah, it's basically at the very end of it, precautions and, and uh, possible side effects and so on. It tells you not to use your cell phone uh, for more than an hour and a half up against your ear. It may even be less than that now. Uh, and they recommend that you not carry your cell phone on your body, which I mean, who? I guess you could put it in a purse, but who does that? So yeah, if exactly. mental health if mental health disorders are the only thing that's really caused by all this electro smog or uh all this electromagnetic pollution if that's the only thing that's being caused I don't think they'll stop that because it'll be very difficult if not impossible to prove that it's causing mental disorders uh and yeah. it'll be just too costly they'll never mm-hmm. do anything so All right, so the electromagnetic stuff fits there, and I wanted to bring it in because obviously uh, we get into the the real source of what this the the spirit. You know, how is it that this spiritual force manifests itself? How does this spirit of maybe creation or order or disorder or entropy? How do those physically manifest, or do they? And the answer that we have is yes, they actually do physically manifest. And the Native Americans told us they did. The Native Americans had several rituals that they performed specifically intended to create a physical manifestation of these spiritual entities. And they say, said over and over, that these entities do in fact Physically manifest, and some of the ethnographers that visited during these ceremonies, where they tried to get them to physically manifest, claimed that they in fact saw them also. Now, oddly, the the main spiritual practice it was called the testasis ceremony or the massum ceremony, spelled M A S S U M. It is it is a Cheyenne ceremony, which the Plains tribes. Uh, this ceremony was outlawed by the federal government and all that huh. all that remains of it today it was outlawed around the same time the ghost dance was outlawed uh so it pretty much died off and what's left of that particular ceremony today is something that is much newer most people don't know that it's that it's relatively new but it is two different things it is the sacred arrow ceremony which I learned a lot of this from the Cheyenne Sacred Arrows priest, the head priest of their Sacred Arrows. Uh, that's a story that's told in the book. He spent 30 days at our house with my wife and I along with his family, and we had some pretty deep discussions. Um, so that's one of the things. And the other is the Sundance. The Sundance is a relatively modern, relatively recent adaptation of the Tistasis Ceremony or Massum Ceremony. But it doesn't do the same thing. So those are relatively recent.
0: Now, so why were those are... banned by the federal government? Oh, well, the why did the government... federal government stick their nose into this and, and stop it? Well,
1: we were con- the, the U.S. government was controlling everything Native Americans did. They were terrified of them. Uh, and we put them on reservations, and they would get together for their ceremonies, and it's like a gathering. The governments always are governments are always upset when a groups of people, who you are trying to control, get together in, in um, you know, meetings and large groups. That's mm-hmm. what it was. Yeah. So they, they're trying to control Native American tribes, and then in a ceremony, they might get four or five hundred of the uh, natives that are living on a reservation gather together and listen to a holy man talk uh, and do a bit of dancing and so on, which is an organized activity. And the government said, we can't have that. We can't have them getting together. They're probably planning on attacking us. That is, that is. Um, oh man, uh, that's what caused the Wounded Knee Massacre. The Wounded Knee Massacre was all about the ghost dance. Uh, and a lot of those well, people were believed in the testasis ceremony uh, which we haven't really described and we'll get to it but uh, the ghost dance the testasis had already been um, made illegal then and then the ghost dance popped out and it was made illegal and again watch bury my heart at wounded knee that is a great movie about all this uh, I think I think a lot of listeners would learn a great deal if they simply got into some of the Native American stuff to try and understand the underlying belief system here. Uh yeah. they are it is a it is a different culture but it has what I consider the most interesting belief system that underlies everything that they do. And all of their customs they all have to do with this really interesting belief system about spirituality that everything in fact is spiritual in its nature.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, right. yeah, uh it's sad what it's sad what happened, but uh you know, we just we can't change the past. So, okay. Let's uh let's describe the testasis ceremony. Can I do that?
0: Yes. Yes. Okay. Please.
1: So, it say uh, the that word I can't really define it. It's a, It's. a. It has to do with the underlying belief system. And the belief system, again, is, well, there was a singularity. It split into two. It then created the physical world. The physical world is where it plays out. We have to interact with it. It is our obligation here. We're put here by the creator to interact with this thing. That is what testasis means. It is saying that all of those are believed in and we accept the role. So that's the testasis culture. So they had a ceremony one time a year, every year. It lasted for 56 days. Oh, my goodness. 56 days. The first 28 days. Yeah, I know. But the first 28 days basically the first half of the 56 days was putting out the word and gathering everybody together and creating the sacred space and it was done by it began by sending shaman to the bighorn medicine wheel in Wyoming now I've been to the bighorn medicine wheel several times it is about 10,000 feet in elevation at the top of a mountain which is totally flat It's above the tree line, so there's no trees, and there's a spectacular view of the horizon in all 360 degrees. And what the wheel is, it's an 80 foot in diameter stone structure. So it looks, it's laid out like a wheel. It has a ring of stones on the outside, and then it has a center ring, or it's a cairn actually, it's a pile of stones with a depressed center is what a cairn is. And then there's 28 lines or spokes. And so what the shaman did is they would lay down in that central cairn uh, early in the morning before sunrise, and they would look down specific spokes at a very specific time of the year. And what they were looking for was a rise of a certain star right before the sun came up. So they would watch a star rise on the horizon right before the sun came up. And the first one was Aldebaran and it was June 22nd, and they called it the Red Star. So that is when it began. So the shaman would send the messenger down the mountain, and that messenger would go to other messengers. They would spread the word to all the tribes, and they had to gather together. So that it was a 28-day process of everybody gathering and coming together. So they had a central place where they all came together, And then the the same shaman would be at the top 28 days later and they would see what they called the blue star rising just before dawn right above the horizon. It's known as the star Rigel, which is in – it's Orion. It's one of uh, Orion's stars. And that Mm -hmm. began the main ceremony then. And in the main ceremony, they they literally – would dig up the sod and create a gigantic circle in the ground. They dug up the sod to expose the ground. Now, like I said to start all this, everything is spiritual in this belief system. Everything is part of spirit. So dirt, physical dirt, is the most primordial spiritual energy that exists. It's very primordial. In fact, the shaman uh, his name was Lou White Eagle, who stayed with us. He used to go outside a lot when we talked, and he said, well, this this is sacred knowledge. I must purify myself. So he would go out, and he would pick up dirt from our yard uh, and then bring it in, throw it on himself, throw it over himself, and occasionally on me, uh, which is probably <laughs> something I needed. <laughs> uh, really? Because, yeah, but dirt is the most primordial of all substances, and that's why mounds – and earthworks were made of dirt. It's not just a convenient substance, but it's primordial spiritual energy is what it is. And it's being utilized in these formations like mounds and earthworks and other sacred sites. Rock, rock is a type of solidified spiritual energy. Mm-hmm. Uh, different types of formations, different types of uh, shapes of rock, and different types of rock like granite. Uh, were seen as uh, they had different uses for them. Granite, for example, generates a lot of electricity when water runs through it or around it. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, but that, that relates to the plasma ideas we'll get into um, hopefully okay. here in a minute. If I don't yes. talk the entire hour and a half just straight without ever getting there. Uh, I know. So, anyway, okay. <laughs>
0: so much to water talk about. Is, that,
1: yeah, water is, is flowing spiritual energy. So you got dirt is primordial, rock is solidified spiritual energy, water is flowing spiritual energy, fire is the release of spiritual energy, crystals, like quartz crystals, are, the, are a purified form of, of uh, spiritual energy, purified and solidified, but crystals could release it. It's, uh, crystals were put here in order for us to utilize and release the spiritual energy in them. And I can give your, your listeners a little experiment they ought to try. Uh, If they have two large crystals, basically big enough that you can put them in your palm of your hand. They don't have to be really good ones. They can be the cheap ones. As long as they have some quartz in them, they're fine. Get two of them. Get a good pair of gloves that you don't mind getting wet. Go to your bathroom at nighttime. Fill the tub half full of water. Make sure it's totally dark in there. Turn off all the lights. Have it be totally dark Put a crystal in each hand, have your gloves on, put them under the water, and then rub those two crystals together as hard as you can, as hard and fast as you can. Just do it really quickly. And what you will do is light will fill the room. That's what it will do.
0: Oh, my goodness.
1: Shaman used to do things like this. Um, I've actually seen them take the take crystals quartz crystals and they put them into a leather pouch Uh, and this is something they used to do at, at in the evening when it's really dark and they'd be telling stories and then you grind those pouches like with your you with your wrist you grind it you push and you grind and that and then you get these little balls of light that come out little balls of light pop out of the bag because what you're releasing here they're not sparks they're actually little mini-plasmas, little tiny plasmas that are coming out. It's, okay. It is a release of, of, of energy and electrons that are producing a little electro, electromagnetic field around them. But Shaman have done this kind of stuff for all time. So in the testasis ceremony, they dug the, they'd make these spaces. They'd make a circular space. They would remove the sod and create a wheel. A, when I say a wheel, I mean the exterior would be a wall of earth. It doesn't have to be very high, but it's a wall of earth which encloses the spiritual entities that they're going to try to manifest. And when they would perform the ceremony, they would use their bare feet and put their bare feet on the exposed dirt. That's why they removed the sod. They wanted to to literally ground themselves, almost like an electrical ground. You ground Mm -hmm. yourself into the dirt, and then they would begin the ceremonies. So they had a ceremony where they reenacted the creation. There was only a very small secret group that ever witnessed and saw that. And that group numbered, as far as I can tell, no more than four or five people in an entire tribe. And then they had a ceremony, a hunt ceremony that pretty much involved everybody. But then it broke down into lots of small, smaller secret society groups, and that is where they began to manifest these entities. And the, the ethnographers, the most recent ethnographer who wrote about it in the late, well, the late 60s is when he wrote it, uh, he said that it was, identical that what he witnessed in these ceremonies was identical to what people call the paranormal he said he saw psychokinesis uh, take place you know which is the movement of objects through one's mm-hmm. mind or or on their own uh, he saw a lot of other things he saw things floating uh, and objects so that's the shamanistic part so shaman have always been tasked with doing this And they believe that these spiritual forces want us to interact with them. So if we don't interact with them voluntarily in a controlled sort of atmosphere, what happens is they come to us anyway. And when they Uh come to us, they come in a trickster form. And a trickster is a native well it's really a native american term but every culture in the world has tricksters and a trickster lore in england it is primarily fairies and gnomes in the islamic world it is the it is the jinn which were the forerunners of the genies, but they're still a trickster. Native Americans simply called them tricksters, but they're found everywhere. Native Americans also had little people, which are also found in the British lore, which are a form of the trickster. Uh, The little people pop up over and over in our book, and I tell a story about uh, this uh, Cheyenne shaman that came and stayed with us uh, having an experience with a trickster in one of my offices, uh, which is mm. actually a very in, interesting story that is and it's believe, right at yeah, your is in your house. This happened. Yes, this happened uh, well, in, it your was house? in my office. Uh, it wasn't in the house. It was in my office at that time. This was in 1989, um, and this guy was in Memphis for 30 days. It was at a uh, a protest. Uh, archaeologists were digging into a mound in downtown Memphis. I was working with the local county government at the time, and just drove down there to see what was going on. And I became aware. I tried to become a peacekeeper, and it really worked until this shaman wound up sticking his um, medicine shaft into the face of the chief archaeologist or the head archaeologist, um, and <laughs> oh, that kind of that kind of created a problem. But anyway. Uh, we invited he and his wife and his kids immediately to come just to stay with us till this thing's over. Uh, And it took 30 days for it to be over. Uh, The Mm -hmm. the Memphis City Council at the end of the 30 days passed a resolution that kept the archaeological dig from occurring. But, okay, so on a weekend – I had a private practice at the time with a psychologist and psychiatrist here in Memphis, and I had a small office. In that office, we had a device that is called the Gram Potentializer. Now, other people have heard me say this, and they think I'm saying grand. I'm not. It's Gram, like a Gram cracker. Uh, You Mm -hmm. can't get them anymore. You can see some video of them on YouTube in a few places, uh, but I don't think they're available anymore. But this device... What it, what it is, it kind of looked like a, uh, a massage table, a very comfortable, comfortable massage table. And it created an electromagnetic bubble around your body when you laid on it. And the bubble was tuned to the Schumann resonance. It was the exact Schumann resonance, uh, the same as the earth you had a north and a south pole on this because the the word magnetic implies that there's a north and a south pole and it also did this rotation this really gentle mild up and down rotation Um, and it, it was a circular up and down every seven seconds which was tuned to the ocean's wave cycle. So I asked this guy, Lou Whitey, go, Lou, do you want to lay in this while I'm doing some paperwork? I had some insurance paperwork I had to fill out. And he said, yeah. So I put him on it, turned it on, and I went to another office. About uh, ten minutes later, he walked into my office very shaken up. I Uh kind of looked at him and said, what is wrong? And his exact words, his first words, I remember distinctly, little blue people. And I went, what? Little little blue people, little blue people are in the room. I said, what are you talking about? So he told me the story very quickly. He laid there. He shut his eyes. After a few minutes, he he felt like somebody was watching him. So he opened his eyes. There were three large windows looking to the outside in this room. And he saw these little blue people, which he said were about three and a half feet tall. Uh, they were just they had some sort of sort of blue fabric of some kind on their entire body. They appeared to be sexless uh but they they were looking at him through the window, and he got a little concerned about it, obviously, but then suddenly they started literally melding themselves through the window. Through the walls of the room, the exterior walls—it's like they were just walking through the windows and the walls—and they surrounded him. And he had suddenly he had paralysis. And then, with their little hands, they started poking his body with their with their fingers, and that oh, terrified him. And oh, that, my had, goodness. The, when he got terrified, he it broke his um, the spell of being paralyzed. And that's when he got up and walked straight over to my office. So immediately, I when he told me the story, I got up and said, oh, I want to see these little blue people.
0: Yeah, really? And I really. walked over there. <laughs> yeah,
1: so I went into the room. The device, the Gram Potentializer, was still doing its rotation up and down. It was still on, so I turned it off, and I didn't see anything else. So I asked him uh, for more details on the description. He was describing something that almost sounded like Whitley Strieber's Aliens, The Little Grays. So uh-huh. I showed Lou, when we went back to the house, I showed him Whitley Strieber's book uh, and the cover with, of his book called Communion, where he has that gray on the front. And Lou said, mm-hmm. uh, n- not quite. He said, they're almost, it, th- that's sort of it, and, but not quite. And he said, these were little people. And little people in Native American lore are spiritual beings that are tricksters. And that's what he said that it was. Uh, I asked him, too, do you want to use that device again? And I'll bet you can. You know the answer. <laughs> yeah, I
0: think I can imagine a big no to that one. But, yeah. you know, when you talk about these beings, whether they're the little blue people or fairies or gnomes, I mean, there's a negative connotation to the word trickster. So yes. is it that these are negative entities? I mean, what, is, what no. does this mean nope. when you call them tricksters? The trickster is
1: not evil at all. These two forces aren't evil too either. You would think that you know the that creation would be good and order is good and disorder and entropy are bad, but they're not. They're just two sides of the same coin. Uh, it's mm-hmm. like the inevitability of this universe. Everything. Is created and everything winds up being torn apart and is destroyed. That's just the nature of it. The trickster is is never seen in Native American lore as evil. Although, if you if uh, certain tricksters can lead you to your death, that you know. No, and yeah. in, in in England, they've the pug, talked about how lot. Wizzy. You follow these, yeah, you follow these little creatures, and they will. You get lost in one of those moors over in England, and there's stories about that. Uh, and same thing here, same thing in the Native American literature. But the trickster is not evil. The trickster is a test. And the test mm-hmm. is uh, that's going on is a test of the percipient or the person interacting with the trickster. And if you can get by your initial interactions with a trickster and maintain that your harmony and so on, it will lead you to much higher spiritual truths. Edgar Casey is a really good example of this. Edgar Casey, Edgar Casey used to interact as a child with the little people. That that I don't know how much uh, listeners will know. Some will know a great deal about it, but Casey started seeing dead people after he watched his grandfather drown his grandfather fell off a horse and knocked him out and he fell in water and drowned Edgar started and I believe Edgar was four years old at the time and Edgar Mm -hmm. started seeing dead people after that and then suddenly he started seeing little people they started coming to him and at age around age 13 An angel appeared to him, but it it appeared to him the same way it does to everybody else. And that is, there's always a light involved. The room lit up, a big ball of light was there, and then what he saw as an angel appeared. And the angel asked Edgar what he most wanted to do in his life, and as it turned out, the angel said, okay, you be a healer, especially of children. Now that that in and of itself uh led Edgar Casey into his psychic readings and healing he was doing what he was told and I've often been asked I mean we are big people in the Casey organization when I say that my wife and I are life members she she just got off the board of trustees of the ARE and we both have done oh. loads of stuff there we're going there next week so oh, terrific yeah so, But here's the thing. I'm often asked, you know, was Casey ever wrong? And my answer is yes. Edgar Casey was wrong about several things. And let me tell you, all the areas that he was wrong about in all of his readings, he gave almost 15,000 readings where every single word of those readings is written down. And that's the beauty of, of Casey's stuff. He's the only psychic where everything he said was written down so we can test it. Whenever yeah. he got things wrong, it is very clear why, and he even said why. They did readings with him about why was this wrong, and he said why. It's the motives of the people involved. It's our motives, hmm. and that's what Native Americans told us about interacting with the trickster. You have to get by the trickster aspect, and you, ha- you get by that by having pure motives, if you don't have pure motives or good motives, you'll never get by the trickster aspect, and it will mislead you. So I believe that's what happened with the contactees. I believe the contactees saw tricksters. And how do I know hmm. that? Well, because the, 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 the beings that the contactees uh, saw lied to them. They don't live on the surface of the moon. They don't live on the surface of Venus. They don't live on the surface of Mars. We know, we know for sure that, you know, there's not cities on those planets or moons. There may be life in some of these places, but there's not cities like they're here on Earth. And clearly, a lot of the contactees, and even the very first contactee, they were all told that there were, that these other planets were inhabited just like Earth is that it looks just like Earth. And we know that's not true. So they were misled. They never got by the initial aspect, the trickster aspect is what I mean. And the same thing with abductions.
0: So so it's almost like what you're saying is this is a form of initiation. It's like if you get past this, whatever it is, to find a higher truth, then it brings you to a different level of consciousness and understanding that's more expansive.
1: You just hit something that I have never said, but it, that's exactly it. I had I should have used that term before. Should have used it in the book. An initiation, yeah. Your initiate, you have to get by a level in order to reach much higher levels. And so, yes, it's an initiation, absolutely. And I, I call it a test. You have to pass the basic test to get there, and but you can't go beyond it. When Edgar Casey went beyond what he was told to do and that he was supposed to do that's when the problems that he did have occurred they always occurred when he was going beyond it same thing with Joan of Arc I'm absolutely fascinated with Joan of Arc Joan of Arc saw an angel too when she was roughly 13 years old and the angel was in big ball of light she saw these angels many times they were always in big balls of light they were seen by one other person who actually saw the beings that were in the light. Uh, she was told that she would have roughly two years to complete the task that she was being told to do. You know, she was told to reinstate uh, the Dauphine as the king of France and drive the English out of France by becoming the head of the French army. Now, this is like a 13-year-old peasant girl who can't read, who's living in a tiny little farming community with sheep. And she's told she needs to go to the king of France and tell him that he needs to give her a horse, he needs to give her supplies, armor, a sword, and make her the head of the entire French army. That sounds insane, wow. and she knew it was it insane, does. too. It sound... But she did it. She, she followed it. their yeah. instructions to a T, and everything that they told her came to pass. And what happened at the very end with Joan of Arc is she went beyond what her initial instructions were. She was told to stop when the Dauphine became king, and she didn't. She went a step beyond that. That's when she wound up being betrayed and captured and so on. So, I'm not saying That's that she very
0: tragic. I think
1: <clears throat> yeah, it's it's very very tragic. But there are many other examples of this. Uh so the balls of light and so on. Uh people think it's just a ball of light. Well, what is it? Well, it's a plasma. So, let's let's say what a plasma is. A plasma.
0: Yeah, I want to hear more about this. Definitely. What is yeah.
1: this? I feel like I've talked this whole thing solid. So let me tell you what a plasma is. Okay. Uh, there, are, there are four states of matter. When I was in college, uh, I was told that, you know, there's solids, liquids, and gases. I don't remember them ever even mentioning plasma. Uh, it might have been, but if it was, the definition of a plasma back in the 60s and 70s was it is an ionized ball of gas, superheated gas, but it is a different state of matter. So today we know a great deal more about it. And a plasma is a superheated ball of gas, but it is ionized. So it also, it's well, it's ripping electrons off of, of atoms. It's tearing molecules apart, then tearing atoms apart, And as it rips the electrons off and they start swirling, they start ripping other electrons off. And it starts shooting out light, which are known as photons. Photons are light. That's what they are. So Mm -hmm. when the electrons are ripped out of the atoms, the photons are released. So plasmas produce lots of light. That is what a plasma is. But it is ionized getting too close to a large plasma causes radiation burns because it is electromagnetic it is an electromagnetic okay. thing so let me t- let me tell you how one might form So there are natural fault lines, maybe water is running through, and electricity is generated by these, by fault lines, it's called tectonic strain or tectonic pressure, where fault lines are pushing together. I'm just using, this is the classic example of it. So the two fault lines are pushing together, causing pressure, that is causing the release of electrical energy, mainly electrons, from granite or any other type of crystalline structure that electricity has to go somewhere. It can't just sit there. So it is often discharged through an opening on the surface of the earth, some sort of an opening. It's discharged into the air. At the point when it's discharged, if it has sufficient amount of energy, it actually forms itself into a ball. And in this ball, it gets hotter and hotter and as it as it as it tears more and more electrons off its electromagnetic energy gets stronger and stronger and on the interior of it it begins forming its uh, it begins forming a structure i think i'll I, I won't i won't mention that structure again for another minute let me get to that in a minute uh, right. but as it as the thing forms it creates a almost a cellular wall on its exterior. When I say a cellular wall, you know, our body is filled with cells. It's 50 to 100 trillion cells. And all of those have an exterior wall, and then inside of them is is the fluid and other things that are in our cells. Uh, The same thing occurs with a plasma. All right? So the plasma forms. It forms an electromagnetic shield around it. The electromagnetic shield extends far beyond what you can visibly see with the plasma, the ball of light. Uh, it is very, very hot, can be very dangerous if you touch it. And that, that basically is what a plasma is. That is the, um, the typical explanation, that's the typical explanation of a naturally formed plasma. So they have been made in laboratories In 2007, a group of six physicists wrote an article, published an article, in the Journal of New Physics. And in that, they were uh, experimenting with plasmas based upon a lot of prior research that showed plasmas had really exotic characteristics. Part of this research was done because of the British Ministry of Defense Condine Report. The Condine Report, that's spelled C-O-N-D-I-G-N. It's not Condon Report, Condine Report. Uh, mm-hmm. came out in 2006. It was released, and in it, it was the British Ministry of Defense's evaluation of what UFOs really are. And it says point blank that the genuine UFOs are plasmas, and there's two different kinds of them. They're exotic plasmas and dusty plasmas. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna explain a dusty plasma in a second. An exotic plasma simply means we don't know what the heck is going on with these things. They're pla mm-hmm. we know they're plasmas, but we don't know why they are doing what they do. So these researchers, these these um, six physicists studied them in the lab and they found the following things. Number one, they appear to reproduce They appear to have evolution, and they appear to be alive and intelligent. This is what they said. All right, so when the plasmas formed in the laboratory, as long as they had sufficient energy, what they did is they began forming in their interior a double helix, which is like, if you think of a ladder that has a whole bunch of rungs on it, and then you twist that ladder around and you just twist it. That is a double helix. That's what human DNA looks like, and there's in human DNA there's three billion rungs in that ladder. Uh, but with plasmas, they form something like that inside of them, and it's visible. And then they saw this double helix split, just like it does in human cells. When our cells reproduce, the DNA actually splits down the middle. The double helix splits down the middle, produces two cells, and then the cells replicate the other side of the DNA, and then the cells can replicate again and again. It's exactly what happens with us, and that's exactly what was happening with the plasmas. That was the reproduction part. And then they saw that the weak structures died off and didn't reproduce weaker plasmas died off and didn't reproduce it was only the strong ones and that is the evolutionary part evolution is always always about the stronger survive those that are more adaptable and stronger survive and then they said in here it appears to us that they are interacting with us and if we kept these around long enough they would become sentient and have intelligence just like us they in other words they believe they are right now that they are very short lived living beings. I mean we are the same. We we will exist as long as we have energy coming in. That's the same thing as a plasma. You think about it, so, well they're putting energy into it. Well, so are we. When we eat and we drink, we're putting energy in ourselves. You stop putting that right. energy in, we will go away. It's the mm-hmm. same thing with them. So they're found all over the world. They occur naturally. At certain places, which are window areas, portal areas, um, they are areas of interaction between us and something else. Native Americans could sense these places. The shaman had the ability to know when they were in like a portal or a window area. And they could literally sense it. And that is why they chose those areas for a lot of their rituals and for a lot of their structures. So that's kind of an introduction. They could bring things through more easily. Sorry?
0: Yeah. They could bring things through more easily if they're in a portal or a window. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, it's, but yet at the same time, I wonder, when you talk about Joan of Arc, you know, having, being visited and talked to by these, balls of light. I mean, are we coming to a place of understanding that this plasma intelligence, this could be possibly the three worlds in one in a ball of light That's that she was talking to? I mean, it had superior intelligence. It had the ability to know outside of time and space what she needed to do. There's some super intelligence at work here.
1: Well, there is something at work here. Um, Native Americans said all things are connected, all things are one. Uh, their idea of the, I brought a spider up earlier, and the idea is is that the, my my I had a 1990 book called People of the Web, and that was of course 1990 was the very beginning of the internet. And a lot of people said, "Oh, that book's about the internet." No, it wasn't. Native American, and that's a t- that, that comes from their belief system. Okay, so when a spider makes a web, it's very, you know, it can be used for two things. It's beautiful. It's creation, and it's very, very beautiful, but it's also a trap. That's why a spider is bo- represents both the trickster and the creator, both of them. But mm-hmm. uh, the thing about a web is if you touch a really even a remote part of the web, and you shake it a little bit, the entire web vibrates. It's all connected. Touch any part of it and everything else is a part of it. And this is where the physics comes in. Andrew has done what I consider to be the best job I have ever read of anybody's work in explaining the physics of the paranormal and what's really going on with this. Uh, When we get close to these plasma forms, when they appear whether it's voluntarily you know, trying to call them, or whether it's just an involuntary manifestation of one, an intrusion. Uh, there's an interaction sphere. We get inside an electromagnetic interaction sphere, a bubble of energy. And what we propose is that this entity, whatever it is, is reading our motives, our beliefs our intentions, our expectations, and our culture. And it is conforming itself to what our individual expectations are. That's what it Hmm. does. It can conform itself physically to our expectations, or it can conform itself um, to our cultural beliefs, and that's how it operates, but it is interacting with us and reading us, uh, but it's a part of the whole. So the question is, are everyone, is the entity that appeared to Joan of Arc, was it a different one than, say, appeared to Mary back in biblical times or to Edgar Casey, in 19 uh, – oh, gee, it would be around 19, 1899 or so to Edgar Casey. Was it a different, you know, we talk about angels. Was it a different entity or could it all just be manifestations of the same force because all things are connected and everything is spiritual in its nature in this belief? So that's just a thought. I'm not saying what the answer to that is, but I'm not sure that they're different. I'm not sure that what the contactees interacted with you know, when they went outside and the alien walked out and said, "Hey, we're from Venus," uh, I'm not sure that that's any different than the ones that Joan of Arc saw. In terms of its of, of its source, the effect mm-hmm. is certainly different, but it has to do with adjusting to the cultural expectations. So, in my part of it, I call these I call them time beings, and the time in this case is spelled T I I M E and it stands for Transient Intrusions of Intelligent Manifesting Energy. So it's transient because it's always temporal. I mean, you never hear of a UFO case where the UFO lands in the backyard, and the guy goes and gets all the neighbors and his friends and the, you know, gets on the phone, and everybody comes over, and they're outside, and they're banging on the side of the UFO, and they're out there for an hour or so and getting pictures, and then it takes off. You ever heard of that? No. Never have. No. Had. No,
0: it never happened. Well, yeah, but it's always
1: temporary. It's always very temporary. It's temporal. And it's an intrusion. It is something you do not expect. It's like it's intruding into our world from somewhere else, from some other world. So it's a, a temporary intrusion. And it's intelligent. It's very clear that whatever it has has sentience. It has consciousness uh, it is interacting with us, so it has some form of intelligence. it is manifesting and in front of you uh and uh it's energy so here's the other part about this energy. I mentioned that I was going to explain the dusty plasma. so how mm-hmm. do these things look physical? How can a plasma do that well? when a plasma forms if you remember i said it's a swirling ball of what becomes gas essentially well we live in an ocean it's an ocean of air and our air the air that we walk around in is just there's molecules everywhere it's just not dense it's not very dense we can move through it freely uh, you know, we can feel it from time to time. When you drive in a car, stick your hand out, you can feel it, but that's always there. So, a plasma is taking air molecules. It starts by taking some air molecules and it starts tearing them apart, superheating them by ionizing them, by removing the um, electrons in them and tearing everything else out of the atoms. And then they start swirling around, but then because it becomes electromagnetic, it starts pulling in dust. And when I say dust, I mean cosmic dust, regular dust that's in our atmosphere, dust off the ground, whatever it is. And when it does that, the thing becomes solid. And when it becomes solid, it can become fluid, it can change shape. It can be picked up on radar. That's what the Project Condine from 2006 that the the British Ministry of Defense said, that dusty plasmas were so dense that they could be picked up on radar. Uh, they looked like wow. solid objects to pilots. They could move around very quickly at what appeared to be impossible angles. Uh, The bigger they got, the more they started taking a sort of oblong or saucer-like shape because they're usually rotating, and as they rotate and they're fluid, they they start flattening out a little bit, more like a saucer shape, and they shoot lights out of them. They can have what look like portals on them, and all that is in that British government report. Uh, so the U.S. government has followed up on it, pretty much found the exact same thing. So that's a dusty plasma. Dusty plasmas could theoretically take on the shape of a person, a being, an object, anything, at least temporarily, if it had the wherewithal to do so. And by that I mean it'd need, it'd need the, the motive, the ability, and it has to have some sort of underlying intelligence behind it. And that's what we believe.
0: That is. This is so fascinating, and I have so many more questions for you. I mean, I wanted to talk to you about Gobekli Tepe, and we're not going to have time. We only have five minutes left. Ah. But oh my God, I've got to have you come back, Gregory, so we can continue this discussion. I want to talk about where Mothman fits in, Skinwalkers fit in, and and also I wanted to talk to you about because you mentioned something. They really caught my attention about granite and water creating electricity yeah. because yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with David Palides' work Missing 411 Are you familiar with his work where no, these people I'm not, go missing no. Oh my god oh, Well I I want to encourage you to take a look at his work uh it is he's done great work he's a former detective but he started following up on these people who were disappearing in our national parks.
1: And oh, okay. That's what And a lot
0: is. of them were yep. disappearing in granite fields.
1: Mm, interesting.
0: Okay. So, I mean, we're yeah. you, you and Andrew put together this understanding of how these energies work. I'm very curious because, I mean, if you look at David's work, he has developed this this whole list of how these – People go missing, and, and, again, these are not people with psychiatric disorders. Uh, there's right. a whole list to go through. But I think you'd find it very interesting and in how you could pull this together with possibly why these people go missing, never to be seen again, many of them, or their bodies turn up someplace very far away from where they went missing, and the cause of death is very difficult to determine. It's yeah, a huge mystery around all of this. He's done, I think, seven books on it. He's got two wow. films out on it, and it's uh, it's always piqued my interest because there didn't seem to be there, you know, one explanation for that. And yet, here in your book, you have many explanations and many ways of bringing all these energies together in this big jigsaw puzzle that we started out talking about at the beginning of the show. So you may want to look into that and see how there may be another piece to the puzzle that you could add. Uh, It's a fascinating look at all this, and certainly heart-wrenching for the families that have never been able to get any closure on where these people went. Interesting. Yeah. We will.
1: I I will look into that. I will definitely look into that. Uh, I will. I, I will add one thing. I never got into any most of Andrew's stuff. Andrew's Andrew really started out by telling that. Shamanism, this search and this interaction with this other force, whatever it is, goes as far back in shamanism as we have archaeological evidence. And so he starts it out at 400,000 years ago in Israel at a site where archaeologists found, uh, well, really it was a shaman's cave with a lot of artifacts in it. That's how Andrew started it because this shamanistic stuff, that they've been doing has been going on probably for as long as humans have been walking on the earth. And how they decided all this is interesting. Uh, and I will look up this 411 thing and all that. You got me very curious about it too now. So I will look into it. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd be
0: so interested in hearing your take on it. And you, like I'm saying, you may have some answers here that have been very hard to get. So that would be tremendous. But I would love to have you back. I know you're super busy. You're going to be traveling. But I would love to have you back to continue this fascinating conversation. It's been a wonderful evening, well spent with you. So We will, I hope we will do it again. Come back. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, thank you. This is great. Well, thank well, you so thank much. You.
1: It's a pleasure. And I'll see you again.
0: Well, We'll please, and everybody, everybody, listen. We have barely scratched the surface of this incredible book. You've got to get a copy, Origins of the Gods, Keith and Caves, Skinwalkers, and Contact with Transdimensional Intelligences. If you love this subject like we do, you are going to love this book. So make sure you get yourself a copy. It's tremendous. So, again, Gregory, thank you so much for your time tonight. And we'll have to schedule another meeting. And thanks again, everybody. We'll be back next week with another great show. Until then, we'll see you you on the Blue Highway. Thank you, Gregory. Good night.
1: Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another radio adventure with Supernet.